Okay. So this morning, uh, I've got the real privilege of being able to, to carry on uh, with the next of our of our new sermon series. I explained a bit about that last week. Hopefully, you've been able to catch up on the recording, or we'll be able to do so um, in the next few days. Uh, but really, just just a reminder that this series we've called it Core, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking working through some core values that we would say that, for, particularly for, for Mike and myself, as those with eldership responsibility of the church, we would say these are the values that we would see that we hold onto as a church, that they are foundational, that they are right at the core, and values that we hold fast to. And this series had come out of some time that Mike and I had spent uh, a few months ago with other leaders from across the Relational Mission family of churches that we are a part of at their Vision and Values and Strategy Day. And they shared about these, these core values that really uh, make up who relational mission is. But they made a real point in stressing that these aren't relational mission values. They're actually New Testament biblical values. That If you were to look at the way the early church functioned and the life of the early church, you would find these values being carried through. And as such, uh, with relational mission, actually at New Frontiers, first and foremost, and then relational mission being... Uh, values-driven movements, what that means is that whatever context you go into, whatever setting you go into, you, you, these values are almost transferable in that sense, that whatever churches within relational mission you come across, even though the, the expression of the churches might look different and the context might look different, actually if you were to really drill down you'd be able to find these values at the core of every church. And Mike and I both came away from that time feeling actually this is something that we feel that we want to spend some time not just sharing with you what the values are that we would hold to, but actually taking the time to really teach through them and to ground them in Scripture as well. So we can see, actually, these are New Testament and biblical values. So we uh, looked last week at what it is to be a, a people who are word-based and, and with the Word of God holding that central place in governing, uh, in governing our lives individually, but also governing church life with that awareness that what values do is that they bring a shape to, to... So biblical values will bring a shape for a biblical pattern of life. Does that make sense? It's the values that you hold to that actually shape the things that you do and shape the people that you are. So we were thinking last week about what it is to be a people who are, are word-based, holding firm to the word, recognising the total truthfulness, authority and sufficiency of Scripture. For us, that is a, that is a non-negotiable for us. Scripture holds that central place in governance for us. So that's what we were looking at last week. Uh, and this week we're going to be moving on to the next value. There's going to be nine values in total, if we can see the next. So there, uh, the nine, which we uh, covered briefly last week. If we can have the next one up, please, Eddie. Is this, is that we are grace-filled. Some of you might not be able to see that now because my whiteboard's in the way, but I'll read it to you. So this is the next value that we're going to work through. We will say that the message of grace and the gospel is central to the Christian life and the local church. And grace ought to be expressed in relation to salvation, church life, relationships and leadership style. We see our salvation as a work of God from start to finish. We've covered grace a lot already in our time of worship. It's been amazing to be able to come and give thanks to God for the grace that he's shown us. But what we're going to do in this time that we have and the time that I've been given to speak, we're going to explore this value a little more and actually to think about what the gospel is, to think about what grace is and what it is for those things to be 
expressed. And last week, we were talking about what it is to be a people who are word-based uh, and really emphasize the fact that this is why we are doing the series is because we want to root these values in what the scriptures say. And last week, we were looking at, um, we rooted that value in Paul's letter, Paul's second letter to Timothy, if you remember, and, and the things that he was talking to Timothy about regarding the word and the scriptures. And we're going to go to another of Paul's letters Today, this time it's going to be Paul's letter to Titus. So if you've got your Bible with you, if you can turn to Titus and Titus chapter 3. We're going to go there in just a minute. But in this value, we're saying that the message of grace and the gospel is central to the Christian life and to the local church. So we are actually going to start with the gospel. That's our starting place for today. We're going to think about what the gospel is and I'm going to present it in a way using the board some of you may be familiar with this way some of you may not but this is one way in which we can articulate the gospel and to say this is what the gospel means I'm going to put a disclaimer out here this is church I'm here to unpack the bible to us this is not an art lesson please do not judge my drawings on the board Uh, be gracious to me extend some grace uh, and just allow me to I was going to say, allow me to do my thing, but you know what I mean. I'm going to do some, some drawing on the board. So, what is the gospel? I'm doing all right. That's going to be a circle. That looks fairly circlish. If you were to look at the news, if you were to open your social media feeds, even if you were just to look at the world around you, I'm sure all of us would recognize that there is brokenness in the world around us. We see that there is death. We see that there is suffering. We see that there is disease. We would be able to, all of us, say, actually, this world is broken. But in the midst of that, we also see glimpses of beauty. We see things that just make us stop and to reflect and to think. And the reason why is because when God created the world, he did not create it in a state of brokenness. That was never part of his perfect plan. But with the first people, what's happened is people have always tried to go their own way. They've always tried to do things their own way and departed from God's plan to do things the way that they would want to do them. And we would understand this and we would call this departure from God's plan, we would call it sin. And it's sin that leads to brokenness and it's sin is the reason why actually we were born into brokenness, into a world that is broken. But none of us want to live in brokenness, do we? We don't want to live in that place. And so what we do is we try and do things that will help us to leave that brokenness or to escape that brokenness. It could be that we try and give ourselves to being as successful as we can as a way of escaping that brokenness. It could be actually we're just going to try and live a life that is really good, where we love people well. And where we serve people well, maybe that will be enough to take us out of that brokenness. Could be that we give ourselves to relationships, hoping that we will find that sense of restoration within the relationships. And actually, for many, they turn to things just to try and numb the pain of the brokenness that they see. But the reality is, is as much as we give ourselves to these things, they never, we never actually escape that brokenness. They're like bungee cords and we just are snapped straight back in. There's nothing that we can do to escape it. got to try and remember now what my circles are. I was doing so well. 
Okay. But this is the gospel. This is the wonderful news. The wonderful news is this, is that God loved us so much that he did not leave us, not want to leave us in this place of brokenness. And so he did what we could not do for ourselves. And he sent his son Jesus to come into the world that was broken and to live in that brokenness. And he allowed Jesus to die on a cross And in doing so, Jesus took upon himself the sin and he took upon himself the brokenness, sorry, and the punishment of sin that actually we were due. And Jesus died on the cross, but three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death. And God declared this. This is what God declared. He said that if anyone would turn from their old way of living and surrender to Jesus... And if they would live with Jesus as king of their life, that their sins would be forgiven. And they would be restored back into God's original plan. That really is one way that we could articulate what the gospel is. That is the good news. I say that's one way that it could be articulated. I would love to have come up with this particular way myself but I haven't it's a a way that some some folk from movement.net have have worked and crafted together as a way to encourage people to feel equipped and enabled to be able to share the gospel with those that don't yet know Jesus and those that need to hear it there are many ways in which we could articulate the gospel there are many ways in which we can share the gospel but it comes down to this fundamentally is that salvation is found in Jesus and salvation is found in Jesus alone That is the gospel that is so central, as we're saying, that is central to the Christian life and to the local church. And in these verses in Titus that we're going to read in just a moment, Paul is also emphasising the centrality of the gospel. He's doing that first and foremost to to Titus. He draws his attention to the gospel and just emphasises the centrality of it. But he also doesn't just do that for, for Titus to know individually, but he then, he then gives it to him and instructs him to then share it with the church, to remind the church of the gospel and the centrality of the gospel. So shall we read uh, from the start of chapter 3 in Titus? This is what Paul writes. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by grace, we, uh, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So in these few verses that we've just read, we see, uh, we see Paul really emphasising the gospel, just reminding Titus of how it is that he came to be saved, about the initiative of God within the whole thing, and really emphasising that centrality to the gospel that we need to hold fast to. And we see in verse 3, just this recognition and admittance of our brokenness, that realisation that we've all been in that place where we've been separated from God. And Paul's not just saying this about some people, some other people who are out there. He, he recognises actually where he once was in relation to God. He doesn't say some people, he says actually for we ourselves, including himself in that, we ourselves used to live in this way, in this place of sin, where we were foolish and disobedient and led astray and all those things that he speaks about. That's what we talk about here, about what it is to be living in brokenness and in sin. But it is into that brokenness, it is into that state of sin, where God's goodness and kindness appears in the person of Jesus Christ. Doesn't Paul say, he says, but we were one, we were, for we were once like this, but, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Rescue comes. Jesus saves us from this place while in brokenness. And in that place, what happens is the Holy Spirit, in a way, it's like the Holy Spirit, not in a way, this is what he does. The Holy Spirit takes possession of our hearts. And as Paul says, he, he cleanses us in the way that he washes away the old and then he makes us new. That's what Paul means when he says about uh, the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit washes us clean and he makes us new. We're different to the way that we were before. And, and, and what has actually happened is that through Jesus and Jesus alone we are justified. What it means to be justified is that we have been made or declared righteous in the sight of God. We now have right standing in front of God and it's Jesus that has done that for us. It's what Paul is laying out to Titus in this letter. And because of that We've received eternal life. There's a hope that we have about a life that is to come. We're actually where we've been restored back into God's original plan and back into relationship with him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That salvation is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. I feel like I've said this a few times in different ways, but that's because I really want to emphasize this is absolutely central to our lives as Christians and to the life of the local church. We cannot step away from the gospel. We cannot move away from the gospel. So the gospel is central, but so too is the message of grace. Two things go hand in hand. So what do we mean by grace? I feel like grace is sometimes one of those words that you could describe it in, in so many different ways but John Stock put it like this he says that grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues isn't that be- a really beautiful description of what grace is grace is love that cares and stoops 
and rescues. And that is exactly what we see Jesus doing. He left the glory and splendor of heaven. And he humbled himself. He, in that sense, he stooped and entered into our brokenness in order that we would be rescued. It is the opposite of karma. Glad I got that right because my writing looks like it says karma. I have no idea what the opposite of karma is. Maybe we can chat about that afterwards. But, but, grace, <laughs> but grace is the opposite of karma. Karma would say you get what you deserve. But grace is getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. Don't we see that in the gospel? Paul's understanding of salvation is rooted in the grace of God. He says in verse 5, he says that he saved us, so God saved us through Jesus, not because of works done by us in our righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not about anything that we've done to earn it or achieve it. Paul's saying actually there's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to put yourself right with God. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself to escape your sin and escape your brokenness. No matter how hard we might try to do it, there is no amount of work, there is no quality of work that would be sufficient to pay the price that our sins actually deserve. But it's according to his mercy that we have been saved. And then he goes on, doesn't he, in verse 7. He says, we've been justified not by works, but by grace. That love that has come to care and to stoop and to rescue. Philippians 2 verse 8 says this about Jesus. It says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. We need to understand this. My whole salvation... Your whole salvation does not depend on your own obedience, but on the perfect obedience of Jesus. It's not about how obedient we are. It's about the perfect obedience that Jesus showed when he went to the cross for us. Our salvation is not earned or merited, but it's given as a gift. And the gift that we have been given is this, is that we have been given the right to be called a child of God. It's not simply that our sins have been forgiven and God will put up with us. We've been given the right to be called a child of God. We've been brought into his family. This is grace and this is grace that is grace to the extreme. This is grace that goes well beyond what we would expect or what we would hope for. This is grace that is lavished upon us. Absolutely. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Amen. This is good news. This is why it is so central. Because it is the best news. And so because of that, we build upon grace and we build upon grace alone. Grace is how we started and the Christian life involves continuing how you started. We started in grace so we have to continue in that same way. Grace is not seasonal. It's not something that grace, our need for grace comes and goes. Nor do we ever reach a point of maturity where we no longer need grace. We could maybe fall into that trap of thinking that way. And actually in these verses that Paul is writing to Titus, he speaks about past grace 
It's grace that comes through salvation. When Jesus saved us, we receive grace then. He also speaks about future grace, grace that will come with the hope of eternal life, that life that is to come. So we've got past grace and we've got future grace, but we also experience God's grace in the present as well. There's grace that we experience and encounter in, in the everyday. And we need grace daily. I don't know if any of you would be aware of this, but there's actually there's a form of Japanese art. Uh, can we have the picture up on the board, please? Can everyone see that? Okay. It's actually come up quite well. And it's this art uh, where they restore and fix broken pottery. It's called kintsugi, which actually, if I've read right and researched right, kintsugi means golden joinery. And these lines that you can see, or these marks that you can see, come from what they do is they take the broken pieces and they form a resin, and it's, and it's, got, it's gold. It's gold in colour, it's this golden resin. And what they do is they take this resin and they fix and attach these pieces of the pottery back together uh, and restore it. It's not, these aren't, this isn't paint that's just been painted on the surface. Actually, the, it's the resin that binds the pieces. It gives it its shape and gives it its form. And what it actually does is it results in something that is more beautiful and more valuable and more unique than the original piece. So much so, I can't remember which century it was in, but they actually were thinking that people were breaking their pottery on purpose in order to do this to it. Such was the, the, the increase in the value. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because I came across this and I think it's really helpful. Someone was saying, actually, this is a picture of what grace is like in our lives. This is a really good picture of how grace works and functions in our life. You see, we come to God, bring in what we have. We bring ourselves, we bring ourselves in whatever state we're in. We bring ourselves in our brokenness. We offer, we give him what we have. We offer him our life. Which means we bring our strengths and our weaknesses. It means we bring our sin. It means we bring our hopes and our fears. We bring our triumphs and our failures, our joys and our sorrows. But grace does not discard us. What grace does is it takes what is broken and it puts us back together in such a way that it's more beautiful and valuable than it was before. This is what God does with our lives. And it's an ongoing process. And we can go through seasons where we just feel like, God, I have no idea what you are doing here. Either I feel like I'm failing miserably, or other people are treating me in a way where I just feel broken. But by God's grace, he puts us together and he's producing something that is just beautiful and so valuable. When we were at the RM date, Maurice Nightingale said this, which really stuck out to me. He said that grace is to be enjoyed. Grace is to be enjoyed. We should be a joyful people because of the grace that has been shown to us. And he went on to say that our relationship with God is to be reveled and rejoiced in. It should be. should be reveled and rejoiced in. And so we must make sure that grace is at the heart of everything we do. That's why we're talking about it having that central place. It has to be at the heart of everything that we do. And because it's at the heart of everything that we do, it ought to be expressed. Which is where, if we can have the vision back up, please, Ellie. That's what we're saying. It's that recognition of the message of grace and the gospel 
But therefore, grace should be expressed. It should be worked out in some way. And we're saying it should be expressed in relation to salvation, church life, relationships, and leadership style. I'm not going to go through each of those in, in context in terms of what it looks like for grace to be expressed in salvation or grace to be expressed in leadership. But what we're going to do is just spend a little bit of time going back into what Timothy wrote to Titus and what, we can, what he, he uh, reveals and unveils about grace in such a way that I think it will help us to see what grace expressed looks like and it will have crossover in all of these different areas. Does that make sense? So we'll look at what does grace look like expressed and I think it will cross over into what it looks like to salvation and church life and relationships and leadership style. We'll have that, there'll be that uh, level of crossover there depending on what context we're looking at. So the first thing is this, is that grace is expressed through works. Grace is expressed through works. Salvation is not by works. Salvation is by grace. Paul really makes a point of that, labours that point to Timothy. But then he goes on to say in verse 8, he says that the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So he's saying that the gospel, faith through grace and not by works, is, is trustworthy. It's something that should be preached on. And actually, he's t- telling Titus to in- insist on this is the message that you need to preach to the people. So we must preach salvation by grace and not by works. But what Paul's saying is we preach that in order that people then devote themselves to good works. But the good works are coming not from a place of striving to achieve grace, but actually as a response to the grace that we've been shown. Can we see the difference there? And we need to grasp the difference there. Because if we're not careful, we see this call to good works and we can feel like actually maybe we've got to do these good works because we need to maybe even pay God back for what he's done. But actually good works come as a response to grace, never as a means of attaining or receiving grace. Good works are a response rather than the cause. Mike Betts puts it like this. He says that faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, Without works is all that is required of salvation. But lifestyles of obedience to Christ authenticate such genuine faith. So lifestyles of good work are sort of that authentication, that marker of the change that has taken place in our lives. And we're now living from a place of grace and as recipients of grace. And why should we do and devote ourselves to good works? Because good works are excellent and they are profitable This word came up last week, or rather they are beneficial for people. That is why, because it does people good. And Paul's saying it's not just for Christians. He doesn't say it's good for some people or for for Christian people. He says actually it is profitable for people. It is profitable for all people that we are those that devote ourselves to good works. You see, grace enables us to make great choices for fruitfulness. That's what grace does. It enables us to make good choices in a way that we weren't able to before. Secondly, we make God's grace visible to those who have not yet seen it. Okay, so we make God's grace visible to those who have not yet seen it. Back in verse 1, we hadn't actually touched on verse 1 yet. But again, we get this call to good works that Timothy puts out. He says, this is the way that you are to, to be among the people. This is the way that I want you to treat people. I want you to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, not to speak evil, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle 
and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That's good works being expressed to people, isn't it? It does people good to be treated in that way. But why is Paul telling them to do this? And he continues into the next verse, because we know that we were once far from God and living in sin and living in brokenness. And we recognise that we were saved by God's mercy. And because we recognise that we were saved by God's mercy, we then extend the same mercy towards others. It has an impact on the way that we treat other people, the way that God has treated us and the way that God has dealt with us. You see, as recipients of God's grace, he sends us or he commissions us to give grace to those who need grace. Look at the, look at the world around us. Don't people need grace? Don't people need love that is shown in care that stoops and comes and rescues? Isn't that what people need? And as those of us who have not only been shown grace but received grace, we can show that and give that to people that need it. It's right that we do that. Why would we? Isn't it wrong that we feel that we could keep that to ourselves? That we would ever feel that we could, we're just going to keep it and not share it to other people? That's not the way that God's dealt with us. God's extended mercy and goodness to us. Therefore, that's the way that what we should extend to all people. Paul called himself the worst of sinners. He recognised that about himself. But he knew that because God transformed him, that the gospel is powerful enough to transform anyone. Paul knew that. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe that? Do we believe that the gospel is powerful enough to transform anyone? Do we truly believe that? Because if we do, then it needs to find its expression through the church. It can't just be something that we might claim to believe. Actually, we need to express that through the way that we are with people and the way that we love people and the way that we engage with people and the way that we welcome people. I'm not, I, ho- I really hope I'm not coming across in some sort of heavy-handed, we have to do this. Understand this, this is a, this is a response to God's grace. This is not about guilt and condemnation because we've been saved from guilt and condemnation but we've been released and made free to live in a different way because of what God has done for us. This is an invitation that we have. This is an opportunity we have to love people in this way and to extend grace to them. For those who are not yet saved, don't we want them to see the church not as those who will make them feel worse but to see the church as a place that they will find mercy. Phil Moore in his commentary on Titus, he says that Paul uh, wants us to imagine what the streets of our cities would be like if people believed that churches were a place where they would find the love and mercy of Christ instead of self-righteous Christians. I I think a lot of people are put off even thinking about the church because they think that the church is full of self-righteous people that will make them feel worse about themselves. And maybe to some extent their experience has actually proved them to be right in many ways. We don't want to be that kind of people, do we? We want to be those where people would uh, look at us as a church and realise it's a place where they would find the love and mercy of Christ. The message of grace is a beautiful message. And it's one that has been entrusted to us and one that is needed, uh, is needed in our lives 
daily. It's one of the reasons why tools like this exist, because we want people to feel equipped to be able to share the reason for the hope that they have, because this is news that needs to be made known. It's a beautiful message, and it's a much-needed message in this day. And we daily have opportunity to make God's grace visible. Did you know that? In the day-to-day, you have opportunities to make the grace of God visible to those that haven't yet seen or experienced the grace of God. What a privilege. What a privilege we have. Third thing is that grace is expressed in fellowship. Grace is expressed in fellowship. I had that picture of the bowl when I was talking about Kintsugi. I'm going to talk to you about another bowl. Uh, And this bowl I want to talk to you about was... uh, was a, a really helpful picture that I read about in a book that I've been reading by a guy called Paul Tripp. And he says, I want you to imagine a bowl of water. You're holding a bowl of water in your hands. And someone comes along and they shake your hands vigorously. And water spills out of that bowl. And he, says, he asks the question, he says, why does water spill out of the bowl? He says, the answer many of us would have is because someone's come along and they've shaken your hands, which is why the water has come out. You've been shaken, so the water comes out. And he's like... Yeah, logically, that makes sense. He said, but it's not quite as simple as that. He said, the reason that water comes out of the bowl is because it's water that's in the bowl. He says, if you were to have milk in the bowl, he said, you could shake and shake that bowl for all eternity and water would never spill out of it. And the point that he was making is that actually what happens is when we are shaken, and the the book's about parenting, and, and he's talking about it in terms of how the relationship that we have with our children and how we and how we uh, parent through grace. But actually, this is true of all relationships. He's saying that actually what happens is when we, we get shaken by the sin or weakness or failure or rebellion of other people, we, we will, we'll get shaken by it. But what will spill out is what's in us. You see, if we respond with bitterness or anger or discouragement or frustration, actually, that's not on the person who's caused us to react like that. That's because that's what's in our heart. And that's what comes out. And he's saying, and in this book he's saying, actually this is not a bad thing that we recognise this about ourselves. Because if we recognise this about ourselves, and if we find that when we're in fellowship with people, and in in relationship with people, if we find we're getting angry, if we find we're getting bitter, or discouraged, or frustrated, what it should do is actually get us to go to Jesus. And to receive grace. Grace. And actually to say, actually, Jesus, we're going to trust in your uh, rescuing, transforming grace that you've shown upon us. Because actually, we're in that process of being changed. And I know for myself, I would never want to stay in that place where, where things that come out of my heart are not good responses. I want to become more and more like Jesus in the way I respond to people. But I also recognize that I can't produce that in myself. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will do that within me. It's true for each one of us. And the reason why I say this is because we need to recognise that actually, in in fellowship, there will be times that come where actually, through engagement and interaction with other people, we will will get shaken. It, It happens in whatever community you're in. You do get shaken and you do get knocked and you do get rocked, but we want to make sure that what comes out is actually something of grace because of God producing that. Within us. Does that make does that make sense? What I'm saying here, yeah. And I've been reflecting on this, and I recognise this as I think about the relationships that I have, different relationships that I have. I know 
that there have been situations where God has used my relationships, or particularly my reactions within relationships, to bring conviction. Not, not condemnation, but to bring conviction because of the way that I've responded. And actually to say, there's something going on in you that I want to deal with rather than necessarily what's going on in the other person. And the question that comes back to my mind is this, is how has God dealt with me? How has God dealt with me? And we need to be asking ourselves this continually when it comes to living in fellowship and community with one another. How is it that God has dealt with me? And I've been thinking as well about what biblical community looks like. And if we look at the way the early church was, what we see is a people who were, they were in one another's lives and homes. They had all things in common. They shared all things together. They were devoted to fellowship with one another. There was a level of intimacy and a depth of relationship that was there. And that was fundamental to the church. It was God's, you know, it, I think it's God's gift to us to be in relationship and community like that. But actually within fellowship there was place for confession and repentance. There was a place and a need for correction and rebuke. Told about how it is that we handle, how we are to handle offence. And I honestly believe this. Honestly hold to this. Is that the intimacy that we see in the church or the intimacy that is possible the potential that there is in the church is an intimacy that we all need. I honestly believe that. And that if we, uh, I think we'll miss out on that if we keep disengaged or not fully engaged in fellowship. But there are many reasons why we do or we can disengage from fellowship or only to allow ourselves to engage so far. Maybe the things that might prevent us from doing that might be a fear of rejection. Maybe it's a fear of people's reactions. Or actually it might be because of the way that people have reacted in the past. We might be carrying hurt about that. Experience can hinder us or even prevent us from living the life of close community that Jesus calls us to. And I think the reason why sometimes we can find it hard is because true, in true fellowship, in biblical fellowship, we open our lives and we make ourselves available to one another. And to a great extent, we make ourselves vulnerable to one another. We, trust, we entrust ourselves to the care of other people. And I'm saying all this because I want us to come back to grace in the way that we are with one another. And in the way that we treat one another. You see, grace doesn't mean that we never speak into one another's lives. Grace doesn't mean that we never challenge or confront anything. But when we do so, we do so in a manner that is appropriate that is biblical, and that is gracious, that is full of grace. We do not treat one another with harshness or condemnation, but we daily demonstrate grace to one another through word and through action. We're not to lead people into guilt, we are not to lead people into shame, but rather we lead them to Jesus who has removed our guilt and our shame. We take people to Jesus. And I keep coming back to this question in my life. And it's one I want to keep putting out to you. How has God dealt with me? And that's the way I want to be able to deal with others. I want us to have a culture that is absolutely saturated by grace. Our culture, our attitude to be one of grace. just want to run through just a few verses quickly. Because I'm not saying that this is just something that I think is a good idea. 
actually I think this is something that is very biblical. If we can have, we're going to just have all of these verses going through really. So what have we got first? John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Why? Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. It's a response to the way that God has treated us. Next one, please. Oh, sorry. Carrying on. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way that we are together speaks a message to the world about who we belong to. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, it's a response to the way that God has treated us is the way that we treat other people. Next one, please, Ellie. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Can you see the pattern we're coming up with? The way that God has treated you is the same way that you should treat other people. Next one, Colossians 3.13. So we're to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Uh, next one, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's that call to good works that we're meant to extend to one another and to everyone. Have we got any more? Philippians 2, 3 to 5. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The reason, I know that feels like I've put up a lot of different verses, but that's because I really want to emphasise the point here. I've not just picked one verse to support a point I'm trying to make. The way that we treat one another and the way that we express grace and mercy to one another is absolutely, it, it, the, the Bible is just saturated by it. This is God's heart for us. And then the last thing is this, I'm, only gonna, I'm not going to actually go through this. Um, but the last thing we need to realise is that grace is something that we need to contend for and grace is something that needs to be guarded as well. Because actually what Satan wants to do is he wants to move us from certainty and assurance. He wants to move us from a place where we feel distracted, disoriented, confused, where we're doubting, where we're living in unbelief, so that we shrink back and give way to the ground that has been won for us by Jesus. That's what happens if we allow our attention and our focus on, on grace to shift. Or if we actually say that we need to build upon something other than the gospel and grace together, we're going to be on shaky ground so we need to guard grace we need to contend for grace we need to preach the gospel often we need to preach it to ourselves and to each other so we don't forget it why because we never graduate from needing god's grace so let's continue how we've started it is by grace that we have been saved so let's keep the message of grace and the gospel at the center at the core of our lives and of our church and let grace be expressed.